Hi, and welcome to the third episode of our Jurisdiction podcast, looking at the litigation differences in England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, I'm Paula Swain. I head up the commercial recoveries team in England and Wales for Shoesmiths, and I'm joined by Andrew Foyle, um, who does the same for us in Scotland, and Gillian Crotty, who does the same in Northern Ireland, um, amongst their many other talents. Nice to see you again, Andrew and Gillian. And you. And you as well. So we're going to talk about um, jurisdiction in the context of the differences between our jurisdictions and in relation to a case, so a, a debt recovery case, different values and how that will go through your various procedures and systems. So first stage is obviously client sends us a new instruction. Um, we take a look at the file of papers and we think about sending a letter for action. Usually when clients contact us at that stage, it's a very sort of urgent part of the um, experience. And they want to get that letter for action out onto the desks of the person who's not paying them um, for their outstanding invoice. But of course, as lawyers, we'll always put the brakes on at that point, won't we? And just check the details before we fire the letter out in the post or email these days as well. And part of the consideration there is to look at the availability of the invoices, a statement of account, the terms and conditions. And we spoke um, in one of the previous podcasts about the jurisdiction clause and whether the laws of England and Wales apply and the courts of England and Wales have exclusive jurisdiction and how we deal with that. Um, Andrew, are there any differences in Scotland in terms of how you would open that case for a client? I don't think there's any particular difference in terms of how to open it. I think I'd, I'd said in one of the one of the earlier episodes that one of the things that we always will do is try and look at the downside, look at the other side, what's going to come back in. So actually having in advance the, the evidence that you need to, to counter what you think will be the arguments used against you is quite important. And then, as you say, it, it gets loaded up. We, we send the LBA. What I don't fully know, and you can tell me this actually, Paula, is about the uh, pre-action protocols in England because we don't have them at all in Scotland and I don't know when they apply in England. But... In the um, B2B context, uh, business to business, Essentially, it's you are going to be suing an individual. Um, then we have to use the pre-action protocol process by sending a letter of claim rather than an LBA, so letter before action. That's the difference in terminology. And it gives the individual an extra period of time to respond. And it goes with a lot of information with it. Um, and they can fill out quite, you know, a, a statement of means uh, when they respond. They can provide a dispute if they want to at that stage, which we, which we then look into once we have that reply. So it builds in a sort of longer process um, for the creditor to go through when sending that initial letter, whereas the, the LBA can be a shorter process. You know, how many days do you give in Scotland? Uh, well, it can be any time you want, but um, it's either seven or 14 days, depending on what the client's preference is. Is that the same for you in Northern Ireland? Very similar, yes. So like Andrew said, in terms of the file opening process, sending out our LBA, so letter before action, it'll be very similar to England and Wales. Um, and depending whether the client wants us to give seven or 14 days, that's absolutely fine. I think, again, a bit of a combination probably between the two jurisdictions in respect of pre-action protocols. Um, so anything that has to be carried out prior to commencing formal legal action. In Northern Ireland, we don't have any kind of pre-action protocol in respect of debts up to £30,000, anything above £30,000 if it's seen as being commercial in nature. So business to business, where it's company to company or even company to a sole trader or partnership, 
where it would appear that if it's going to be defended, then we tend to follow the commercial pre-action protocol because we know there's a risk of if it's defended being passed into the um, commercial list. And that basis, it sounds quite similar to the correspondence that you just mentioned, Paula, where it's not our seven-day LBA. It's a detailed letter of claim where we set out certain steps um, in terms of what the respondent defendant has to do, more detail in respect to the claim itself. And it gives them a little bit longer, so 21 days to be able to provide a response. Mm. And you also have to offer up an opportunity um, for the parties to essentially have informal discussions to see if the matter can be resolved prior to issuing um and it's something if you don't follow that step and the case is defended that potentially there can be cost implications for the for the creditors so it's something again as andrew said when we receive the cases in at the outset we'll always review them and we'll decide whether it's appropriate to simply send a seven day or 14 day lba or if it needs a detailed letter of claim yeah to, to be fair in scotland we do have a commercial procedure as well which is very similar uh, so we would have a pre-action uh, protocol there but the difference, I think, is that ours is more or less voluntary. So we can elect to go down the commercial route and it's a different set of rules, uh, or we can raise it as an ordinary action and, and go down that that road. Um, and generally, we go down the ordinary route for these types of claim. I think in England and Wales, when the um, protocol came through, there was some concern about the impact this would have on timescales mm. and whether it would encourage disputes. We don't see that on a day-to-day basis. Um, I don't know if the same for you in Northern Ireland, yeah. but... You know, we tend to send the um, LOC, as we call it, the 30 days passes, and then we're on to issuing proceedings. Absolutely, very similar. And actually, like Andrew, um, the the commercial list technically is is also voluntary for Northern Ireland and that you have to make that decision when you're issuing to note that it's uh, of commercial nature. Um, We tend to recommend it for clients where they are commercial debts. It works out much better for us to then normally um, raise them as commercial actions. And if it's not defended, it doesn't really make any difference then in terms of cost. Um, But if it is, it means you have that ability to actually then almost fast track the case it's case managed from the outset and actually where we issue proceedings in the normal queen's bench um, list without transferring it across quite often when it reaches the review list before the queen's bench judges they might direct at that point anyway to transfer it across the commercial list so we tend to err inside of caution and say we're better to send those letters of claim and as you say um paul it doesn't tend to elongate the process and actually it can encourage parties if it's perhaps a debtor who has the ability and should have paid and knows they should have paid to actually come forward at that point within those well 21 days for us to actually make the payment or make proposals. So when you come to issue the claim in Northern Ireland, is there is there any variation? Is it always done in the same way and then it's up to the court to essentially allocate it to... No, so um, depending on the level again, so in Northern Ireland, um, and it, it's, it's fairly similar, I think, other than the actual levels of debt, um, we have the three separate... I suppose, stages in terms of where you'll be issuing proceedings. So we have small claims cases that are debts up to £3,000. Um, we then have county court debts for anything between 3000 and 30000 And then 30000 plus will be the high court. So it, it's really then quite often it's dependent on, upon the debt itself. And other than in the high court where you're making that decision between whether it's commercial or not, in terms of county court, it's simply based on the area, so which which county court jurisdiction it will be within, but the the methods of then raising the claims vary depending on whether it's going to be small claims, county court or high court. And and we unfortunately don't really have terribly many electronic systems yet in Northern Ireland in terms of lodging. So only the small claims procedure at the moment can be done electronically and online. Everything else still involves paper um, documents being filed and lodged with the courts. 
And is that quite a formal process? Because I remember when I first qualified, you used to have to sew documents together yes. using ribbon and this, that, that type of thing. Yes. So luckily we don't tend to sew very much anymore. I think, I think that's a dying skill. When I first started um, working, um, the PAs in my team could all sew and they all had the sewing skills mm. and would have kept their needles and, and the sewing ribbons um, in their desks. But that luckily has disappeared a bit now. Um, but we still use margined paper normally in terms of lodging court pleadings. I'm not sure if that's something you use yeah, in, in Good to Wheels yeah. at all. So essentially it, it's it's a more formal type of paper and because we're we're lodging them properly. And, and I think even during the pandemic, um, the courts in Northern Ireland have, have moved a lot more in terms of electronic bundling, for example, has been introduced recently for the first time. And during the pandemic, there were different ways in which we could lodge certain documents electronically, but we still had to lodge the originals and certainly in terms of issuing proceedings at the outset they have to be done by a physical paper proceedings so your high court takes on a lot more in terms of cases then doesn't it really because most, most disputes will be over thirty thousand pounds absolutely dealing with. and i think that's something for example for a commercial list that means that it can be very busy because the the level of debt doesn't actually mean that it may not be very complex so we still get a lot of complicated debts that may be at the 40 to fifty thousand pounds le- um, limit so it's something at the moment that is being reviewed um the courts are seeking to increase the jurisdiction and although i don't have time limits at the moment i think it's something that we'll see over the coming year or two years where jurisdictions will most likely increase and i think that's something from a client creditor point of view um would be useful because in the county court at the moment in northern ireland we have what's known as the county court scale which means that you have certainty of costs. So if a case is defended, depending on the level up to £30,000, there will be a set fee for the plaintiff claimant and a set fee for defendant and again, set fees for counsel. So it means that actually in those county court cases, we can very much give the client a, a pretty accurate estimate of costs from the outset if it's defended. Whereas once it moves into the high court, you're into much more of an unknown. So I think in terms of our client's point of view, it'll be a very welcome thing, I think, to see the jurisdiction go up to what will most likely be £50,000. Whereas obviously in England and Wales, the county court is dominant um, and most of our cases will be dealt with by the county court across the various parts of the country and the high court probably won't be troubled um, unless it's a very high value um, case or there's a you know complex issue that means it needs to be dealt with there. How about in Scotland, Andrew? Yeah, but in Scotland, I think the sheriff court, for certainly for the type of work we're talking about, would be... Uh, more or less the only court you'd be you'd be looking at there is the court of session uh you can go to the court of session if you if you wish to if the claim is over a hundred thousand but as there's no limit to what you can raise in the in the sheriff court you would generally go to the sheriff court that's local to you and then we've got two different procedures so under five thousand pounds it goes down the simple procedure route and then anything above five thousand pounds is ordinary procedure and the ordinary procedure is a bit more formal there's a bit more a lot more written pleadings there's a big emphasis in Scottish procedure on what's in writing and you can attack the papers on particularly what's what's in the written pleadings uh, without leading evidence and, and, and so on so there's it's a bit more scope uh, in the ordinary procedure in that sense simple procedure is a bit less formal deliberately so the sheriff has more or less a complete discretion to to deal with things how he wishes to do deal with it um, including by making a decision just based on the papers that come in front of him without you know, reference to any of the parties. So it, the, the simple procedure was intended to speed things up and, and make it less formal and encourage uh, less use of, of, uh, of lawyers in that, at that level of the court system. That hasn't obviously happened. Lawyers are still involved, but that's the idea, is that anybody should be able to pick up the rules and follow them. Great, thank you. We're at £10,000 here for the small claims court, you're at three in three, Belfast. Yes. You're at five um, in <laughs> Scotland. 
Um, and we've just had some news coming out from government. They're looking to um, change the rules to compel anybody in the small claims track to attend mediation with the small claims mediation service rather than it being a voluntary process. So I can see this sort of where the wind is blowing. What's happening in your jurisdictions in that? Do you think you'll see your limits lifting or is it fairly static? I mean, for us, the, the simple procedure rules came in in 2016 and it's been 5,000 ever since. So yes, at some point, I guess they will review it. Um, I haven't heard anything specific about that just now. It's really the bankruptcy limits they're looking at the moment for us. And again, nothing imminent at the moment, but I think the small claims limits could increase. Although, again, in terms of mediation service, for example, that is not something that is available or even encouraged at the moment in Northern Ireland in terms of small claims cases. Obviously, the courts themselves will always encourage discussions and, and mediation, but there is no formal process in place, either voluntarily or or mandatory. Um, but like, I think, as Andrew said, in terms of the simple process in, in Scotland, the small claims process in Northern Ireland has been designed and engineered for the parties to hopefully deal with those cases themselves without the need to have lawyers. And I think that is why the small claim system is the only system in Northern Ireland that does have the electronic um, filing of the claim available, applications for judgment, etc. There's no formal process in terms of we still use at both county court and high court, for example, in Northern Ireland, um, affidavits that have to be sworn by the clients to prove their debt where the claim isn't defended. And that means that someone from the client company will have to go and see a solicitor to declare that the debt is as they say it is. So it means it's something for procedurally for um, clients, and particularly I think with people still working from home quite often, it's something over the last couple of years has been a little bit of a pain to have to go in and find a solicitor who was working in an office who could swear the affidavit. So certainly the small claims court has been designed to be as user-friendly as possible and keep costs to a minimum. Thank you. So then we've issued the claim and we get a dispute and a defence is lodged. What happens next in Scotland? With a simple procedure case, so anything under £5,000, it's up to the sheriff what happens next. There's five things he can do. He can send it to mediation. Uh, so there's no mandatory mediation as you're, as you're talking about, but the sheriff can go, no, I'm not actually hearing it, go to mediation and, and sort it out. He can ask for some more information to be lodged and then make a decision there and then. Uh, he can make a decision just on the papers that he's seen. So seeing the defence and seeing the, the papers that have come in, if it's pretty clear to him that either there's a very good defence or there's not a great case or a very good case, um, he can make a decision there and then without reference to the parties. Does that happen very much? That doesn't so much. Normally he'll ask for some more information back and, and give you an opportunity to respond to the defence and so on. So what will almost invariably happen is they'll fix what they call a case management discussion so that uh, he can have a chat Same with here. the parties and, and figure out what, what goes next. So that's anything under 5,000. For anything over 5,000 pounds in the ordinary procedure, we'll first hear that there's a, a what we call a NID, a Notice of Intention to Defend is lodged. The court then fixes a timetable. And then about two weeks after that, written defences will need to be lodged. So that's the first time we actually know what the other side are, are saying, what they're defending on. And then there's a period of adjustment. So you adjust your pleadings to respond to each other for about eight weeks. I love that. Yes. That well, would be so helpful here. Well, it's, it's, it's because <laughs> there is so much emphasis on the written pleadings in Scottish procedure and there okay. always has been. So if your written pleadings are deficient, you can have the best case in the world, but it'll be struck out as you would call it yeah. um, at uh, at a debate so you, you, it's it's very important that you've responded to everything you have all of your facts in there and that uh, anything that you're not admitting is denied i say it's about eight weeks of that and then about two or three weeks after that will be the first time it calls in court so there's a good 12 week period when mm -hmm. 
from the client's point of view, not very much is happening because you're just responding to each other. But presumably it's an opportunity as well to resolve things as well. Yeah, it does give you that opportunity. And particularly once you see the defence come in, you know what they're saying, you can then look into that, get you know, speak to the client. Is there any anything in this? And start to open the dialogue. Mm. Thank you. Gillian? There are some similarities, but it sounds like certainly at our small claim stage, it is much more informal. Um, so once you become aware that it's being defended, essentially you'll receive a fairly limited response, normally setting out the details of the um, or the nature of the defence. At that point, the court will simply list the case for hearing normally, and it'll be down to the parties to then, on an informal basis, serve whatever documents they believe are relevant. So on the small claim side, there really are no specific rules about what you must do, um, no specific rules in terms of the disclosure of documents or discovery, as we would call it in Northern Ireland. But obviously each party does or should want to put forward their best case. So as a result of that, you will be presenting any documentation that you believe is relevant, um, serving upon the other side and, and normally making up informal bundles to present to the court. But it really is a very much informal process. So no reviews normally beforehand. It will simply be listed for hearing. For county court cases then in Northern Ireland, so anything from 3,000 to 30,000, it's really that in-between level of formality between small claims and then moving on to the high court, which is more formal. So like Scotland, the first notification we receive of a matter being defended is the notice of intention to defend that we receive from the defendant. And that then puts forward that, that formal process that starts in terms of exchange of information. So normally you raise a notice for further and better particulars um, that the parties have to respond to. There is no formal requirement to file a formal defence, but normally what a plaintiff or claimant will do is request um, particulars of defence from the other party to enable us to at least see um, the nature of it. Because um, I'm not sure about the Scottish one, but the Northern Irish Notice of Intention to Defend simply says it is being defended and you get no further information other than that. And we have a period of six months then to try to close off all of those document um, procedural points in terms of the case and if you haven't lodged then after that six month period what's known as a certificate of readiness to say that the case is ready to be heard the court will then list it for review before a judge at that point really if if certain steps haven't been covered or if it's a complex case that happens to need experts reports for example the court at that point will then timetable it and hopefully set a hearing date or set it for further review if it looks like more steps have to be followed so it's the county court procedure in Northern Ireland is fairly formal and it's set out but it doesn't get listed for a review at an early stage. High Court then is a step up again in terms of formality. There are very set time periods within which um, once you're notified of a matter being defended by way of memorandum of appearance, there are set time limits by which defences have to come in and further steps have to be covered. And again, as I mentioned, if it's a case where we have transferred to the commercial list, it will be listed before the judge at a very early stage for directions, reviews, um, early directions, hearings. And there really is an emphasis on moving matters forward smoothly towards a trial date as early as possible, not involve allowing costs to increase unnecessarily. And the cases are very much case managed from the outset. It's really, you can see that going through those various levels of, of, of debt, going from almost no formality whatsoever to the full level of formality in, in the high court cases. But a, a fairly low level, really, in terms of 30,000 being the entry level a there. Absolutely, so yeah. you can get involved in some complexity quite quickly by the sound Definitely. of Definitely, yeah. and increased costs. So it's so something... It's mindful of that, I think. Absolutely, when, we're making those decisions. Absolutely. In England and Wales, we have a default judgment um, option. So if the other side don't respond, we can enter judgment in default of any representation, um, you know, a defence coming through. And then we get our judgment and we look at enforcement. Similar in Scotland? Uh, yes, similar. So if no response is made at all, then we just 
we apply for decree, we put in what we call a minute for decree, and uh, we get that come through in three, four weeks. Equally, if during the process, so I've, I've mentioned there's certain times, the timetable will be set as to when things happen. And if a party doesn't do something by within that timescale, you can then apply for a decree by default. It's a similar idea. And uh, again, that will usually be granted if the court thinks that the default is serious enough and hasn't been fixed. Um, so yeah, very similar. And again, similar again for Northern Ireland. So if there's no response at all to a claim in the small claims county court or high court, we can simply proceed to apply for default judgment and that's a, a paper exercise. Um, so no need to actually appear before the judge. Similarly in the high court then, if there is no response in terms of a defence being filed within the relevant time period, we can then apply for judgment again on the basis of the papers because no defence has actually been filed. Once you go beyond that point in terms of defences being filed or in the um, county court once the notice of intention to defend has been served, if a party doesn't do something in the relevant time period, so whether it's responding to the notices for further and better particulars or serving discovery, then an application can be made to court. But what you would have in the first instance is an unless order being granted, um, basically saying that unless a party does whatever they're meant to do within a further set period of time, that the court can grant judgment against that party. The courts wouldn't tend to go straight to providing default judgment in Northern Ireland because a time limit has been missed. And that's probably a bit of a difference in that, yes, we have time limits in terms of our high court or county court rules. They aren't applied, I would say, quite so strictly as the civil procedure rules in England and Wales. So in terms of defaults, unless you actually physically make those applications to court or unless the case happens to be listed for review before a judge and the judge decides to grant on unless order, you do sometimes see parties pushing the boundaries a little bit in terms of time limits. One of the things we talk about a lot, costs in relation to all of this. And obviously as lawyers, we get excited about the various steps that we get involved in and pushing things through um, and trying to get the best result possible. But of course, there are costs involved in this um, and the processes we talk about, some of which are recoverable from the other side and some of which aren't. I think our listeners will be familiar with the fixed cost regime and how some of those costs can be added onto the judgments and we can, or the decrees, and we can look to recover those from the debtor. But I want to think about those costs that aren't recoverable unless the judge says you can have those costs. Certainly in England and Wales, um, there is a tendency for the judiciary to um, look at our cost statements and they have quite a wide discretion in relation to assessing those costs. Sometimes it, you can get 100% of those costs. Other times you can have quite a heavy markdown in relation to what you can recover from the other side. Um, so it really does depend on the pen of the judge and how things have gone on day. You can apply for a formal detailed assessment of those costs and appeal but of course you know you then look at the cost of doing so it can be uneconomic to pursue so generally we take the judge's first order on the chin and we walk away at that point how is it in scotland for actions that aren't defended there's a fixed cost and that's that's it if it is defended and we're successful generally expenses as we call costs will follow success and the order is that the expenses as taxed is how they put it. And that's all governed by what we call the Taxation of Judicial Expenses Rules 2019, uh, which means it goes to the auditor of the court. We send them an account saying, here's all the steps that we've taken. And there's a statutory scale for each of these steps. And we put that to the auditor and he goes, you can have that, you can have that, you can't have that. The difference it sounds like between England and Scotland is that if we don't agree with the auditor, we can go to the sheriff and say, can you have a look at it again? Um, and, and review it. And that has happened. In fact, I have one quite recently that went all the way to the court of session, but it's through three layers of appeal. 
um, because it was deemed important enough to 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 do that, and uh, and we were successful, which is good. So yes, there's different scales, so I won't go into it completely just for boring the listener. But generally speaking, it's all there's an auditor of court who looks at these things in the first instance, taxes the account as they call it, and we get a judgment for that amount. Mm. So it's almost a reverse of our system. And Julie. I think Northern Ireland sounds exactly quite similar to Scotland. So um, I think the one thing to bear in mind, though, on our small claims level, so debts up to £3,000, again, because it's designed to be so informal, there are no costs awarded in small claims cases in Northern Ireland other than the court fee. So it's worth bearing in mind that if someone wants to use a solicitor for it, they will never be able to recover those costs from the other side. I think, again, it's that that commercial point, Paula, isn't it, where quite often a client is just weighing up the benefit based on maybe the debt plus interest that they can claim and the cost fee back, but being aware that then the solicitor's fees itself won't be able to be added on to the claim against the debtor. Um, In terms of county court, then I'd mentioned earlier on, it's based on a scale fee. So the scale fees, if you're successful, normally there will be an award for costs as well. And those costs will follow the scale fees. So there's very little room for argument about them because they're set by statute. Similar with default judgments, um, as Andrew had said, in Scotland, there are fixed fees allowable for default judgments in both the county court and high court. So you've got the certainty there. And I think then where we're different from England and Wales, um, in high court cases, there isn't at the moment such a strict regime of um, costs being assessed, certainly pre-trial. Our, our commercial judge has been very good at being progressive and trying to introduce that. So now if a case is going to trial um, and throughout pre-trial reviews, the parties should be providing schedules of costs, etc. What tends to still happen at the point of conclusion and orders being granted is, as Andrew mentioned, it'll be costs to be taxed in default of agreement, which sounds like a fairly similar process. So if the parties can't agree their costs, you then go through the taxation route, um, which is quite expensive. It's You're getting the costs drawn up. Um, it's heard again, they're assessed and, and parties don't tend to want to have that other cost. So what you tend to find if a case hasn't settled and it runs to hearing and you get an order for costs to be taxed default of agreement, 99% of the time the parties will reach an agreement at some point rather than trying to then go through the, the further expense, unless, as Andrew mentioned, it's maybe something where there's a big disparity between the parties in terms of what costs can be agreed. Um, so it, it, again, very much just depends on the, on the level of debt that you're talking about. I think that's different for England and Wales. I think there's a lot of disputes around costs and the litigation there is definitely proliferating. Um, there are some barristers who specialise only in cost litigation. Mm. I think there's definitely more argument. Um, Sounds like it. Here, I think, in terms of the cost. But then some of the cases are going through the High Court. There will be millions and millions, so you can understand why um, people will be arguing about that. So we've got our judgment. We're looking at enforcement. Um, I think our listeners will be familiar with the options available in England and Wales, but possibly not so in in Northern Ireland and Scotland. So Gillian, you have the Enforcement Judgments Office. Office. Yes, we do. Um, Which again, it gives a level of certainty, I think, for um, creditors where you have a judgment. You know that you're going through one route. So we don't have any kind of private bailiffs or anything in Northern Ireland. The Enforcement Judgments Office is, I think I'd mentioned in the previous episode, it's part of the court service. So once you receive your judgment, um, obviously a copy of it would be sent to the defendants. If they fail to pay, the next step for us is a document that's known as a notice of intention um, to enforce. And this essentially is sent to the EJO, who will serve the document upon the defendant saying that unless you pay within 10 days of the date of this document being served upon you, um, the creditor may then take further action by way of full enforcement. Um, So the notice of intention to enforce stage isn't terribly expensive. It's a fixed fee. Um, It can be sent out and you may hope that you'll get a result at the end of it, which is obviously a great 
great thing for the um, creditors if they do. If unfortunately no payment comes forward, the next step is to lodge a full enforcement application again via the AJO. Unfortunately, the fees for a full enforcement application aren't set. So they're based upon a sliding scale depending on the level of the debt. So if you have a very high debt in the hundreds of thousands of pounds, for example, your enforcement fee will be thousands of pounds. So it's something that's expensive. Um, and, and again, it's something from our point of view where we will advise the client accordingly and whether or not we believe it's best they do go down the route of formal enforcement and paying that extra fee to enforce. Um, the AJO in Northern Ireland has something called a discovery application. So you can make a discovery application prior to lodging your full enforcement application. So it's a much lower fixed fee. And as part of that, the EJO will carry out essentially investigations and research into the debtor individual or company to assess whether or not they have the means to be able to repay the debt, um, whether that's via assets or employment. So you know you may not get the debt back in a lump sum, but you should be able to get an order, for example, an attachment to earnings order. Um, so it can be a useful process quite often if if the creditor doesn't actually have much knowledge at all about, about the debtor and if it's not maybe a registered company where there are audited accounts being filed, quite often the, the knowledge can be very limited. And if it's something maybe where a credit application was filled out years ago, the information that our clients have may not be terribly up to date. So it's it's a really useful tool. And it's then a fantastic tool. Yeah. So it's we'd love to have that in England away. Exactly. And it's not, I mean, depending on the debtor, the information that comes back may not always be the most detailed, but sometimes we do get really good detailed information that can very much um help the client make that decision. Property ownership. I mean, you know, absolutely creditors in England and Wales will probably have one address. Um, yeah. And then we'll obtain office copy entries from the land registry to see whether the company or the individual owns that address. And if they do, we can look at then a charging order yeah. um, for securing the judgment. But we have to have that knowledge before we can take those steps, whereas the EJO is has the ability to look across the registers, presumably. They don't tend to look across the title registers, but they will, as part of their investigations, they will report back and tell us if they think that the debtor owns property and if they have a particular address they'll give them to us that gives us the ability to then do oh, the searches okay. right. and find out so they won't go so far as to tell us the title numbers for example but they'll give us information they have that helps us research and as you say if, if we know they own property then we'll get great information so yeah so it's really useful and I think rather than paying that because like I say the fee can be in the thousands of pounds mm -hmm. it's often useful to make that first application for discovery first of all if you get information back that says yes we should enforce the next step then would be to make that full enforcement application again back to the AJO it's a relatively straightforward application um, and and you basically tick the box in it about all the orders that you want the EJO to grant you if possible as part of that one application. Um, if it's possible to grant the orders, the EJO will provide them to us then in terms of OCLs if we've given them the, reg um, the details of the property and um, the other orders that can potentially provide us with. So although it's something which can be expensive, um, where the means and assets are there, it, it's really useful. Now, it's, it's not the fastest process in the world. Once it's lodged, it will go into a list. And, and sometimes then you can wait quite a long time to actually get the relevant orders. But once they're in place, the AJO also then administers receipt of payments. So they will receive those payments from the debtors and will then send them on either to us directly or, or to our clients. And that's really the way it works in Northern Ireland. And then Scotland. And then Scotland. Yes. Um, this is where we really make up. Brand. I know. <laughs> um, as I explain it to clients, it's um, yeah, the Scottish procedure is quite slow to get to the point of getting your, your judgment, your decree. But actually, once you have it, then we're in the driving seat. We're in control uh, and we, we can do 
a number of things uh, straight away. Uh, what we don't have actually, which would be very useful as a way of finding out what asset somebody actually has. Uh, we can obviously look at public registers and, and so on and, and figure it out from there, but we don't have any means of examining them to make somebody tell us what they've got. Or... So that's top trumps to Northern Ireland, I think. Top trumps there, yeah. exactly. Uh, <laughs> we do have something. We... Yeah, exactly. Um, we do have, we, we've got it on the statute book actually, but it was just never brought into force. We had a change of government in 2007 and they didn't bring it into force. But we get our, our judgment, our decree. Our decree is a warrant for enforcement. There's two things we can do straight away. The first is what we call an inhibition. And an inhibition is similar to a charging order, but without any power of sale. And you don't need to know what property the person owns because it covers any property they own in Scotland. It's against the person, not the property. Excellent. So you register it in the register of inhibitions and yes. uh, serve it on them. And does and that cover future there. property as well? So if they, if they it purchase... doesn't doesn't cover future property, yeah. but it stops them selling or remortgaging any property they've got there. Yeah. Uh, it lasts for five years, but you can renew it every five years. Um, the other thing we can do straight away is we can go out and arrest a bank account. So freezes a bank account subject to a minimum protected balance. You don't necessarily need to know their account number or anything like that. You just need to know which bank to serve it on. Let's say you bank at NatWest, we serve it on NatWest, it will freeze any account you've got within NatWest. And even if you don't know the bank at NatWest, you can serve it on NatWest anyway. And if they don't have an account, they'll tell you. Wow. Wow. So that causes some trouble. <laughs> can do, can do. It's, uh, it, 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 to be fair, you, know, you, you obviously you pay a sheriff officer to do these things, so you, yes. you do try and target it as best you can. It's not that expensive. You know, it's it, most forms of enforcement are under £100 each, uh, getting a sheriff officer out to, to serve these things. Certainly, arrestment and inhibition would be the two things that we look at straight away, whether we can do it. And then we can serve what we call a charge for payment, which is a statutory demand for payment within 14 days. If they don't pay in full within 14 days, that unlocks some other enforcement that we can then do. So for individuals, earnings arrestments, again, you don't need to go back to the court to ask for an earnings arrestment. You just serve it on the employer and the employer has to uh, implement it from the next payday. And there's a statutory amount that's taken out. So you don't have to argue about what's affordable. It's, it's in the actual act. So we can do that. We can do attachments, money attachments, money attachment being just cash and checks. Uh, very useful if you're pursuing a nightclub, as I discovered. One of my favorite Ones of these was we went to a nightclub, the sheriff officer had served the charge for payment and had seen what was coming up on their bill of you know who's who's performing and knew that there was a quite popular band that was going to be playing one Saturday night and knew they couldn't bank the money on the Sunday. So turned up on Monday morning with their money attachment to uh, <laughs> to attach the money in the safe. Ouch. Which uh, was the entire <laughs> night's taking. So it's uh, it can be very effective when used properly. And, and the good thing... Well, one of the good things in Scotland is that we have sheriff officers who we work with very closely who will give us that feedback mm. of, okay, we've done this. Actually, you might want to think about doing this because the darkness are playing and you're going to, you know, you might uh, actually, there'll be quite a good taking from the till at that point. So let's let's do that. So we, we have a good dialogue with them. Uh, and then obviously there's insolvency as well if you, if you want to go down that route. Uh, you don't necessarily need a judgment for that. But it helps. But it helps. Um, for a company, not necessarily, but certainly for an individual, you'd probably need a judgment before you, you went down that road. But it's all very straightforward. All we do is ask a sheriff officer to do it and it's done. That's great. Thank you very much. I think that wraps us up really in terms of coverage of a sort of oversight of a claim in the three jurisdictions, um, really focusing on Scotland and Northern Ireland, I know. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me to 
go through that. And I hope the listeners have found it very interesting. And we'd like to do more of these podcasts. Yeah. So if there are any subjects that um, you think you'd like to hear from the three of us on, you know, book recommendations could be one. <laughs> um, please do um, let us know. Drop us a, drop us a line. Uh, we're all available via the Shoesmith website, but equally we will have very active LinkedIn accounts as well. So should you need to get hold of us, um, please do drop us a line. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much, Gillian. Thank you very much, Paula. Thank you. See you soon.